Amen. Well, I have lately, in the past um, couple of weeks, several weeks, been studying the fear of the Lord, that topic, and it's been extremely helpful for me and extremely convicting. It's been extremely helpful on many levels. Um, One of those levels is, for so many years, I could not put my finger on or put into words what often bothered me about some of the stuff that you see that goes on um, in other churches or at during preaching, you know, that you may see on the internet or you read in so-called Christian books and there's a sense of flippancy and there's kind of a sense of lightness and there's no gravity about it. It's just kind of like, a, almost like a personality cult type thing. It's almost like a show. And for so many years I had a hard time like putting my finger on what is the problem here? What, what's going on here? And as I was studying this theme in Scripture, it occurred to me, it's a lack of fear of God. That's what it is. That's the problem in modern Christendom. There's a lack, a profound lack of a fear of God. But God didn't stop there because it's easy to pick on them, Right? I started seeing in my own life, what is it that makes it easier when I'm by myself to sin? What is it that makes it easier sometimes to talk to my wife in a way that I would not talk to her if other people are around? What makes it easier for us to do things that we would do by ourselves that you would not do if you were conscious that someone else is watching you? It's a lack of fear of God. That's why people lock up the brakes when they come up on the police, right? What changed? You're speeding along, nothing changed. It's not nothing changed in the scenario except one thing happened. You saw, here's this policeman. Not only is there someone watching me, but there's someone watching me who can do something about what I should not be doing, right? That's what happens in that scenario. And that's kind of an illustration, a very surfacey illustration, but a helpful illustration of what it means to live under the eye of God or to fear God. Um, I was astounded as I started to study this of how much this comes up in the Bible. I guess I had, I don't know how I missed it. I knew it was there, but this is a major theme throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, according to um, which translation you use, it comes up um, over 250 times in the Bible, plus examples. It's everywhere. It's such a prevalent theme in the Bible that by the time of the psalm, that the psalms are written, written, fearing God or being a God-fearer had become synonymous or the same thing as what it meant to be a true believer. I'll just give you an instance, almost drawn at random, Psalm 130, verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness towards those who fear Him. You see? Those who fear Him. It's just being used in the same way that you would call a believer. Those who fear Him. Two verses later, verse 13, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Just 
The exact same thing. You want to call it a, a person a believer, or you can call a person who fears God. It's the same thing. It's so synonymous with what it means to live under God that you can use them interchangeably. Verse 17, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And we could go on. I mean, this is all throughout the, the Scriptures. And as a matter of fact, in church history, up until very recently, one of the predominant names for a Christian was a God-fearer. You would say, this is a God-fearing man. When you read the Puritans, you see that language all throughout their literature, when they wanted to talk about a Christian, a lot of times they would just use the word a God-fearer, or this is a God-fearing man, because it's so interchangeable, because it so captures what it means to be a believer. And even, even throughout the Old Testament, when you get into the time of the prophets, and the prophets begin to prophesy about the new covenant, and this is what just really gripped me, and really put this whole thing of how important it is into perspective, when the prophets prophesy about the new covenant, and God wants, us to, tell, God wants to tell us what those in the new covenant are going to be like, he uses this language of fear. Listen to just one, Jeremiah 32, 39, and 40. God says, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. For their own good and the good of their children after them, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. What does that mean? That means contrary to what we may believe, there's not less of, God, of the fear of God in the new covenant than the old covenant. There's actually more fear of God in the new covenant than there was under the old covenant. Now that's pretty astounding because what God is saying, you could be under the old covenant and doing these sacrifices and not fear God in the godly sense of the word. But you cannot be in the new covenant. You cannot be a real Christian and not have the fear of God. It is one of the dominating characteristics when Christ inaugurated the new covenant, when the new covenant came in and he said, this is my blood, and the new co that, which is a part of the new covenant, and this is his body that's a part of the new covenant, and he does his work on the cross. What he did there, one of the main things that he did was purchase the power to put the fear of God in the hearts of every one of his people. It's everywhere, and when you begin reading the New Testament, you see it. Let me just give you a couple of examples. In Philippians chapter 2, what is the context that we work out our salvation? He says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Have you ever thought about that verse? It's the climate of the Christian life. 2 Corinthians 7.1, what does he say? How are we to perfect holiness? He says, perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord. How about Hebrews chapter 12 says this, Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with fear and awe. That's astounding. Do you want to offer God an acceptable sacrifice? Do you want to serve God 
If you do, your gift, in order to be acceptable to God, must be seasoned with fear. That is the only sacrifices that God accepts. This goes all the way into Revelation, where we get to Revelation 19, after judgment has fallen on all of God's enemies and sin has been dealt the final blow, fear is still present in God's people. It says this in, in Revelation 19, And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, great and small. So, so this idea of fear spans all of redemptive history, all the way back into the Old Testament, all the way into eternity future, whatever that means, the fear of God not only persists and is present, but is one of the dominating characteristics and a way to describe God's people. So perhaps John Murray is not overstating the case when he says this, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. It's quite a thought. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. Now let me give you a very basic, in many ways inadequate definition of what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is a consciousness of God's greatness and our resulting obligation. A consciousness of God's greatness and our resulting obligation. Um, that's a small definition, but that's a big definition. And the only thing that I'm going to try and do tonight is to deal with one portion of it, because there's actually three. There's one, there's this consciousness of God. Number two, there's this consciousness of God's greatness. And then number three, there's the resulting obligation. And I think you see all three of those aspects in Scripture. But what we'll look at tonight, Lord willing, is just this very, this most basic level of what it means to fear God. And that is a God consciousness. A God consciousness. And we'll do that. I think I told you Proverbs 1. I meant Proverbs 9. Well, actually, though, we'll stay in Proverbs 1 because there's a verse here. I was going to read two of them. We'll start with the verses that we're all most familiar with probably when it comes to the fear of the Lord. We'll read two, uh, two verses. One of them, Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning. And flip over with me to chapter 9. We'll read again. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, of wisdom. This idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of absolutely everything, wisdom and knowledge. Without the fear of God, no other credential that you have can keep you from being a fool in God's sight. You can know all sorts of things about all sorts of things. But if you do not fear God, He tells you in His Word, you are not wise and you do not have knowledge. That, that is important. That is very rubber meets the road for Christianity because you get these men 
like Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawkins that are brilliant men in the earthly sense of the word. Their powers of observation and their memories are just absolutely incredible. You talk to them about physics, you hear them talk about physics, and you hear them do all of these things and say all of these things, and man, they just sound so brilliant. And I don't even know half the words they're saying. I certainly don't understand the concepts they're saying, so they must be right. You deal with this up on campus, you deal with this in college, you can even deal with this in your workplace or in literature that's thrown at you in propaganda where people are sounding smart and they're using all of these big words and they clearly on a human level possibly have more powers of intellect than you do. You've got to go back to the Bible and say this, if that man does not fear God, he's a fool. He's a fool. No matter what else he may know. John Bunyan says this, The fear of God is the beginning wisdom of wisdom, and they that lack the beginning have neither middle nor end. Nothing. Nothing. God is not an add-on. You can't have God over here, but I'm not really submitted to Him over here. He's just kind of part of what controls my mind. I'm kind of split between the middle. I'm enamored by philosophy and what all the philosophers of the world have to say. And they say some really fascinating things, but so does God. And so I'm trying to hold both of these together. You can't do that. In order to start with God, you have to start on your knees. On your knees and say, Lord, you are wise, I am not. You are a teacher, I am a pupil. That is it. That is it. This idea that it's the beginning means that it's not just first in chronology. It doesn't mean that the fear of God, the Lord is godliness 101, but then you can move on to 102 and 103. You get on to better things. Al Martin explains it like this. He says, Learning the fear of God is not only the ABCs from which we move on to the rest of the alphabet, Move on to the rest of the alphabet. Learning the fear of God is not like learning to spell the word cat, one of the first words we learn to spell, and then moving on to acquire the ability to spell the word disestablishmentarianism. Rather, the fear of God is the chief part, just as the use of the alphabet is something that is not left behind, but becomes the chief part of our learning. Thus, when a man is studying the most complicated book on physics, he is dependent on the same numbers and letters he learned in kindergarten and first grade. Now, the physics book may contain complex arrangements of those letters and numbers, but the physicist works with the same letters and numbers he learned as a four- or five-year-old. In the same way, the fear of the Lord is the chief part of knowledge. It is not only the beginning, but that which permeates all accumulation of knowledge at every point of the way. Every point of the way. The fear of the Lord. At a most basic level, to fear the Lord means that God is your reference point in every moment of life. John Murray again calls this an all-pervasive God-consciousness. An all-pervasive God-consciousness. God has dominated your thoughts. 
This is the basis of Psalm 139. When the psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay lay hold of me. What is he saying? God is dominating his thoughts. He knows that he is always under the watchful eye of God. Again, John Murray says this. He says, The fear of God implies our constant consciousness of relation to God. That while we are also related to angels, demons, men, and men and things, our primary relationship is to God, and all other relationships are determined by and to be interpreted in terms of our relation to Him. The first thought of the godly man in every circumstance is God's relation to him and it and his relation to God. That is God consciousness and that is what the fear of the Lord entails. God consciousness. This is again all throughout scripture. Listen to what the Bible says. What does the Bible say about the unbeliever in Psalm 36, which Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3? It says, Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. What else does it say in Psalm 10, 4? The wickedness and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There's no consciousness of God. There's no consciousness that he lives under God's watchful eye. There's none of that at all. It says there's no fear of God before his eyes. Contrast the believer. What does it say in Psalm 16, 8? I have set the Lord continually before me. You see the difference? The believer, there's no fear of God before his eyes. For the unbeliever, for the believer, I have set the Lord continually before me. God is dominating his thoughts. The believer fears God, which means at the most basic level, God has permeated his consciousness. This is the idea behind God's command to Abraham when he says, walk before me. Right? Walk before me. Live your life before me. Come, Abraham, live in the sphere of my domain that no matter where you go, your consciousness is yoked to the fact that I am watching you. Walk before me. Walk before me. Listen to the Bible expound this theme of the fear of the Lord being a God consciousness. Let me just read you a few of these verses. Leviticus 19.14 You shall not curse a deaf man, nor place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? What's the problem with cursing a deaf man? He's not going to hear you, right? Like that's the whole point. The deaf man is not going to hear you. It's not going to bother him, but it's going to bother God. 
So you don't do it. You see the difference? He may not hear you. No one else may hear you. That doesn't matter. For the believer, we live under the consciousness that God is. And He sees and He hears. Listen to this, Nehemiah 5, 14-15. This is Nehemiah talking. Moreover, from the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of the king, for 12 years neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. But I did not do so because I fear, I fear God." What's the difference here in Nehemiah? He probably could have gotten away with doing what every governor had done before him. The people may not have liked it, but, could he, but he could have probably gotten away with it. And he would have probably had much easier life. He would have had more silver. He would have had all this food given to him. His life would have been much, much more luxurious. And there probably would not have been a lot of pushback on that. But he said, I can't do that because I fear God. It may not matter a lot to them, but it matters a lot to God. A God consciousness. Isaiah 8, 11-13 For thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and He shall be your fear, and He shall be your dread. What is he saying? He's saying, don't let the consciousness of their reality, don't let those circumstances flood your thoughts and control me, control you. Let me be your fear. Be conscious of me. Let me be your dread. Listen to this from Christ, the person of Christ. This is this is amazing. Isaiah 11, 1 through 4, it says then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Did you know that the greatest God-fearer that has ever lived was the Lord Jesus Christ. And this puts all ideas away that somehow that this idea of fearing God and a great level of assurance are somehow incompatible. We can have this idea that to fear God means that somehow I need to lose some assurance because these two couldn't work together. Well, Christ brings them perfectly together. When He is endowed with the Spirit, there it is, baptism... The greatest assurance that has ever been given a man comes down at that point and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And yet at that same time, he's endowed with a spirit of the fear of the Lord. It says, listen to this, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. And here's, here's what we're looking for. He will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear, 
but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Did you hear that definition of the fear of the Lord? He delights in the fear of the Lord, and because of that, he doesn't judge by what his eyes see or by what his ears hear. His consciousness, his thoughts are not dominated by the circumstances down here below and the wisdom of this world. What does he say? He says, I always do what I see my Father doing. God consciousness. God consciousness. Hebrews 11.7 says this. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in fear prepared an ark. He hadn't seen them, but God said they were coming. And he's conscious of God, and in fear he prepares the ark. One more. Colossians 3, 22 through 24. When Paul's talking about slaves, it has a great application to the workplace. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. He said not, another translation says, not by way of eye service. Don't just live under the eye of man. Number one, it's probably not going to do much for you. Number two, there's going to be times when your master's not around, and if you are living under the eye of man, you're going to be a pretty sorry slave at that time. Live under the eye of God, is what he says. Live under the eye of God. And so the question here tonight is, are you cultivating this God consciousness in your life, in your workplace, in your marriage and home, when you're by yourself, is there a sense that I live under the watchful eye of God, conscious of God in every situation, conscious of God in every decision? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much tonight for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, what an astounding thing that he feared God. He delighted in the fear of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us tonight as a body of believers to delight in the fear of the Lord. We ask for your mercy to be upon us. In Christ's name, amen.